the Westwood One Podcast Network. Uh, and when I began to realize what had happened uh, and, and to start to understand uh, just the dynamics that I was facing, I was left with the question that every uh, abuse victim is left with, every victim of injustice. Who is going to believe me? How, what do I do? What do I do with this information? All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. Hello there, TNQ Nation. My name is Andrew Brockenbush, producer of the Team Never Quit Podcast, joined by Marcus and Morgan Luttrell, Navy SEALs podcast hosters, pod, podcast, podcasters, whatever they are, they're here, and we're doing this thing again. Good afternoon. Again. Again. Here we go again. Once again. more. Again. Voltron. Activate interlocks. Dynatherms connected. Connected, right? Yeah. Infracells up. Mega thrusters are go. go. If anybody doesn't know who Voltron is, first of all, it's very slap satisfying. Your, slap yourself. It's very satisfying. Secondly, go to YouTube and look up Voltron. The old one? Yeah, the old Not one. Not the new one. The so old one. The other day, I, uh, we were putting the kids down, and I had Voltron was on the TV. And I was like, Axe, you, you, you've been watching Voltron? He's like, yes, yeah, very satisfying. <laughs> a seven-year-old, eight-year-old threw that out. Very I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know what that mur- like, word yes. meant. Yeah, that is very satisfying. You're right. Love well, that kid. Well said. Well young, said, young lad, son. Young lad. I'm so glad you're so much smarter, articulate, and better than me at that age. We got a special guest today. We've got Rachel Den Hollander. They're all special. Everybody's special. But she is, yeah. She's, she's incredible. She's exceptionally special. This is another one of those stories that pulls on my heartstrings because, once again, and I've said it before, People that do bad things to women, I have so much to offer. We're coming for you. I mean, seriously, you don't even know. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what I would do. Before we get into that solid interview, we're going to share our listener story. Morgan's going to read it to you. I'm going to try. He's going to try. This is from Caitlin. Handed an unwanted fight, but never out of the fight. That's a great title. First of all, thank you for everything that you've all done, and thank you for the amazing podcast. My story is pretty much a whole bunch of little things crammed into one. So here we go. I was born on 4th of July, 1991. Amazing. Two months early, just like bro and I, doctors didn't give me a fighting chance, but being born on the 4th of July makes you independent, so I showed them. Amen. I grew up pretty normal, learning respect and hard work ethics on our family farm. When I was eight, two major events happened. The first, I was in an ATV accident that left me with an ugly scar on my neck. There's no such thing as ugly, ugly scars. scars. Ugly yeah, scars dig, are totally awesome. Dig scars. We'll get to that. Number two, I was diagnosed with epilepsy and not the version where you can outgrow it. I've gone through at least four medication changes and three neurologists. I didn't get my license until I was 19. I wanted to join the military, but because I'm on medication, they declined me. 
I won't lie, it honestly broke my heart. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with my life, so I didn't go to college. So I did what you would do when you don't know. I got a job. Working on my family's upgraded dairy farm, I milk cows, and I've been there for almost 10 years. Working with the family has its ups and downs, but I wouldn't change where I'm at. It's not easy work, but it's what makes us who we are. We could quit, given that the dairy market sucks, but we don't because it's our blood. I'm not saying life has been very easy for me. Having epilepsy changed everything. Also, dealing with some depressions didn't help. When I was 21, I hit an all-time low and I cut myself. I just wanted the pain to go away. But I learned that hurting yourself doesn't make it go away. I got the help I needed and I haven't relapsed since. I know that there's people out there who have it worse than me. I also don't know why I was given the fight I was. I sometimes get mad and frustrated. I cry because it's not fair. Why me? And then I'll tell myself, get over it. Move on. You're still the strong person you were yesterday. I was given the fight because God gives his toughest battles to the strongest soldiers. I can do all these things through him who gives me strength. My favorite verse of all time, so much so that I got it tattooed on my shoulder. I look back at everything so far and realize that at only 27, I've been through a lot. If life wants to throw me another curveball, I'll hit it out of the park. This is my fight, and I'm never out of the fight. Well said. Amen. I don't, you know, I, I understand, especially for a lady that scars her. Yeah, you scars, can't. That's, that's another thing, man. You just, that's, that's a resume. Wheelhouse. I mean, that is a resume. It's just like it's kind of like it upsets them when you say they look like they gained weight. You, if you, if they, people say we look like we lost weight. That's an insult. Like what? That's sad for you know because a girl because I always wanted like a lightning bolt scar across yeah, my face. Josie Wells made me look like, tough. Tough because I'm not tough. Oh man, but you, you said it just right. Um, great battles are reserved for great warriors, and at a young age when you're going through that, God wouldn't throw anything on you that he couldn't handle. It's actually the test and the resolve that you pull out of that and that you understand that. That's why when those curveballs come at you again, you're going to knock them out of the park. You understand it. You can see that it is a plan. And that when you go through that, marching through that, it's easy to get blinded by your star when you're reaching for that light. You fall down in rabbit holes, and, well, that's why your friends are there. That's why your faith is there. And you, and you have a new vision on life, Caitlin, because of what you've been through and what's happened to you. And I, I would ask that you sh- be on the lookout. Share that with people who might be in need because— if someone can look and have a conversation with you and you bring them out of that rabbit hole that they're, they're falling down, that's another gift from God. Thank you for sharing that story with us, Caitlin. And today, I hope you're doing amazing. And I think you're, and I haven't seen you, but I think that scar is beautiful. Yeah, and, and look at it like this, man. We, we never thought we would be here either. And it's those situations that we went through and the ability to talk about them on, on the other side that, that brought us here and, and brought us together. Up to you. And now it's your story that you're bringing to us and touch other people. You're not alone. None of you are out there. And even in the darkest pit, when you, when, when you think that all else is gone and there's, there's nothing you can do, man, just kind of stand up and just start walking back because there's nothing you can't handle. Just always believe in yourself and never let anybody's perception of you become your reality. You know what's going on inside of you. So trust in that and thank you again never quit if there's one thing that i've learned it's that sharing your story is a powerful thing there are people out there that need a kick in the ass and your story could be the one thing that changes their lives forever so why don't you just take a minute to share your story with us at teamneverquit.com forward slash podcast 
Just click on the Share Your Story button in the menu so we can encourage you along the way. Your story just might be shared on one of our upcoming episodes. It's time to ask another Patreon question of the day. Y'all's favorite piece? My favorite piece. This is fun. We've had some funny ones. Today, though, Jason asks, I would like to know who each of you think was the greatest World War II general. Okay, does does he have to be a general? Because Chesty's pretty much a badass. But I'm going to go with, obviously, okay, does it have to be American? Patton Montgomery. Does it have to be American? They didn't say American. Okay, so obviously Admiral Ad the Admirable Admiral Yamamoto. Oh, he, you're, you're talking about well then he knew what was going on. The Desert Fox, Rommel, the, the tech, Montgomery, Tacticianer, Patton. MacArthur. So on our side, it would be Eisenhower, Dwight D. Right, President Eisenhower, Patton, or MacArthur. Corn cob pipe. What's up? And then I've always been a, amazed at Admiral Yamamoto's ability to get into Pearl Harbor and and do that to us. Oh well. That was one of the coolest things I mean, about he came living, in and kicked their ass about living in uh, on on Fort Island, seeing the seeing it, yeah. And so our our barracks on Fort Island that, that used to be on it's the not island there anymore. where Pearl Harbor happened, where the, the landing strip still there. We used to ride our, our bikes and, and run across the airstrip. Bullet holes are still there. Still chafing runs. It's and then the, the warehouse that, they call it a hangar. Yeah, thank you. Well, <laughs> I was explaining it. No hangar. Yeah. So, so the hangar, our, our platoon space, and the lockers were in. Still had the bullet holes through it, and um. And they had these chitin attack subs. So basically, they took a torpedo and then retrofitted it to where they could sit two dudes in it. And they, it was one of the first SDVs. The Italians came online, then they had the chitin sub. They found one washed up on shore. And we're the only people that are allowed to swim in that harbor besides the EPA. Because the, the Arizona and the Utah, the battleships, they're, they're there. The Utah, it looks like a, a pile of rust from the... Is that the Utah or the Oklahoma? The Utah. From the from the pier, it just looks like a pile of rust on the top. But the minute you stick your head underwater, or the tide goes down, or it, it, it's a battleship. The whole thing. battleship just sitting right there on the bottom like, of the water. For me to the wall. And then the, the Arizona is still leaking fuel. It's a tomb. Bodies are still in there. And uh, and it those watertight fuel. doors, man. And, and that the tanks are full on the on the Arizona, and they they'll be leaking. Well, they're gonna. What they say? Yeah, the they're gonna scuttle. The rust is eating them away, and eventually they're going to go and dump out thousands of gallons of diesel. You can see it. it they can't like pump it out of there somehow. Uh, well, it's can't because the offset of the weight. And no, if you it's crack the hatch, you're not cracking the like where the the tube would go. Yeah, the whole tank would just crater because the uh -huh. salt water's rusting it away. So there's no way they can like drill it or anything. Well, there's no uh -uh. and inside there's all the watertight doors and how big. So a, a battleship's huge. Yeah. And I mean, not like an aircraft carrier, but you know, a lot of those doors are griped down with them dudes just sitting in there. And then the, the apartments that are flooded over the top and it's just, it, it was something to be a part of that and to see, to swim around that history. It's pretty eerie. And, um, humbling, but eerie. Yeah. Anyway, so I, that's, I think my answer would be 
Man, that was crazy. Man. Hell of a war. Can you imagine sitting out? I mean, just normal business. They caught us during breakfast, all right? And they came over the backside of the, like Oahu. When you go to Hawaii, most people don't go to Hawaii. They go to Oahu, right? And that's where Pearl Harbor is. You go to Waikiki. The big island's actually Hawaii. And uh, there's a mountain range that splits that island right in half. It's the windward side and the leeward side. Oh. And yeah. Mojo yeah. and I lived on the opposite side of it. That's where they came in. Literally scraped down to the water and then came in over the top of those mountains and just... Hammer time. Hammer time. Oh, he asked for general, so we can't give admirals. I'm going to go with Eisenhower because he was the unified commander. Yeah, ultimately, all has to go field-wise, man. Patton, dude. It, man, they make movies. If we're I mean, dropping down, yeah, MacArthur. Because I followed his run over in Africa. Most people don't know we was over there boogieing. Oh, yeah. It gets Kazarine Fox, pa- the Kazarine Rommel. Pass. Hello. Man, on D-Day, when they dropped them dudes off, check it out. So it was Bradley on the ships, right? They had the, the, the R Armada sitting out there in front of those beaches and throwing just bombing shells, right? Throwing them. Didn't even hit it. Didn't even hit the beach. Hit the water, went over it. And then they had fortified that entire uh, bank structure with concrete and guns. I mean, and literally. We you ever really... seen the footage from the other side of us going in? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> Watch that. And it's insane because back in the day, and the way you win a war, and you guarantee, like, you drop your boys off and then leave. Or they used to just scuttle the ships. So you have to go. We literally dropped our boys off on the coast. And they had to fight through that and climb up that, that mountain and get up on there and then walk through You're only going to be here for a couple of days. Yeah. Three years later. Walk <laughs> across that country. Got online Countries. and swept through there. Countries. All right. Hope that answers your That was a great question, Jason. Solid. Thanks, Jason. If you want exclusive access to the show, bonus behind-the-scenes content, join us on Patreon. You get access to exclusive community where you can support others, get rare access to Morgan, Marcus, all of our incredible guests. We actually dropped a bonus episode where Marcus and Morgan are interviewed by their wives, Melanie and Leslie, so you don't want to miss that. So join us at patreon.com slash team never quit. Team never quit. All right, welcome back to TNQ Podcast. Today with us, special guest is uh, Miss Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel, thanks for being on the TNQ Podcast. Let's get right into this. Can you give us and the listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised uh, in a little town called Kalamazoo, Michigan. I was a competitive gymnast for a few years uh, during my middle school and high school years and then transitioned to coaching. Uh, and it was during that time as a competitive gymnast that I crossed paths with Larry Nasser. Uh, and then uh, following uh, high school, I went and uh, became a became an attorney. I'm a member of the California Bar, uh, and I've done a variety of things with that uh, educational background. I've done some corporate work, human rights work, research and writing, uh, and now uh, due to the circumstances of the last four years, I am a full-time advocate and educator on the issue of sexual assault. All right. Let's jump straight into an, uh, um, your never-quit story, and I know you probably have more than one. And it's whichever one you want to talk about today, Rachel. I mean, the world knows you for who and, and who you are, but it, by all means, share share with us what you will, and um, we'll, we'll hand the microphone over to you. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was it was something that really unfolded um, unexpectedly, and yet with years of planning. Um, and I saw, um, for those who are familiar with my story, uh, I was sexually assaulted by Larry Nasser, who was the Olympic team physician. Uh, when I was 15 and 16 years old, the abuse lasted almost two years. 
Uh, and when I began to realize what had happened uh, and, and to start to understand uh, just the dynamics that I was facing, I was left with the question that every uh, abuse victim is left with, every victim of injustice. Who is going to believe me? How, what do I do? What do I do with this information? Uh, and at that time, I was uh, late 17, early 18, and I didn't understand yet the full depth of Larry's abuse uh, because I hadn't, I hadn't had the chance to do uh, as much research uh, as I did over the next few years. Uh, but I said to my mom at that point in time, I said, something's going to have to wrest control from these organizations. Uh, because by 17 and 18, I had watched enough of how our society responds to abusers, and I understood the cultural dynamics and the communication dynamics. Uh, and as I started to understand who Larry had to be, uh, I was certain of a couple of things. Uh, I knew I wasn't his first victim. His movements were very rehearsed, and so it was clear to me I wasn't his first. And I also knew that once an abuser has been left in power for years, it's not because nobody is speaking up. It's because whoever is speaking up is being silenced. And so I looked at the organizations that were surrounding Larry, Michigan State University, you know, one of our, one of our most prominent Big Ten universities. And Larry, of course, was tied to their sports program. Yeah. And I looked at... United States of America Gymnastics, you know, the, the national governing body for the Olympic sport that makes the most money out of our summer Olympic Games. Uh, and they're, of course, protected by the United States Olympic Committee. And the United States Olympic Committee uh, gets all of their funding uh, and their authority from the U.S. Senate. Uh, and so you pull, I knew if I pulled that one thread for Larry, I would be fighting a Big Ted University and their sports program. I would be fighting a national governing body. I would be fighting the USOC. And I would be interfering with Senate funds and Senate money. And so I said to my mom, I can't do this quietly. I can't do it by myself. We're going to have to have media pressure. I have to have a way of wresting control from these organizations uh, and from Larry himself to get it outside of the narrative that they've been able to spin, or I'm not going to be able to get anywhere. Sure. And at 17, I really had no idea. You know, I had no idea how to do that. Uh, we actually talked about marching down to the local news station and seeing if someone would run a story. Uh, but by that point in my life, I was certified paralegal. I'd become a certified paralegal my junior uh, junior year of high school. Uh, and so I knew that it wasn't that easy, you know, that there were legal hurdles that a news agency was going to have to be able to, to cross to get a story like that out. And, of course, reporting was very different back in the early 2000s compared to the type of reporting we see on sexual assault now. And so we just had no idea how to do that. And so really what happened was for the next 16 years, I was watching and waiting for an opportunity to be believed. I watched Lair's career and I watched MSU and USAG. And I just looked for any any sign uh, that there was a crack in the armor. Uh, my mom and I gathered my medical records and uh, we put the documentation in place that if there ever was a chance to speak up, I would have everything that I needed. I continued to do medical research. Uh, we spoke to uh, pelvic floor specialists, uh, and just did everything that we could do to make sure that we had all of the information uh, prepared and ready for if there was ever an opportunity to be believed. Uh, and that opportunity came very unexpectedly. You know, after 16 years, I had really lost, uh, really lost hope that it was going to happen. Um, but after after 16 years, I uh, happened to to open my computer one morning to make a grocery list. And I had my three little kids uh, running around the kitchen. I was carrying the movie, and uh, my one-and-a-half-year-old and, and three-year-old son were playing in the kitchen. Uh, and there was a news article that had been written by a, an investigative group from the Indianapolis Star. And they had been able to lay out what was happening culturally uh, at USAG, uh, that just their pattern of covering up sexual abuse of member coaches and the corrupt culture at USAG. And I read that article, and I said, this is it. Because for the first time, we had an investigative team that was invested in the story and understood 
those abusive dynamics, and they had been able to get people to pay attention. The story was trending, which meant people were reading it and they were finally listening. And I said, this is it. And I wrote immediately to the Indie Star and I told them my story and I said, I will come forward as publicly as necessary if you can just get the truth out. Um, and within uh, within a couple of weeks, I had revisited uh, the law in Michigan and discovered that there had been a statutory change that allowed me to still file a police report. Uh, and so I really uh, worked at getting all the balls rolling at once. I recorded an interview with the Indie Star, and we didn't know yet if the story was going to publish, because of course, again, there are you know, some very significant hurdles to getting a story like that to press. But I had recorded a video interview with them and, and given them all of my documentation, and then we took the family up to Michigan, and I filed a police report, uh, brought a, a huge file of evidence with me, the names of prior disclosures and pelvic floor specialists and medical records and uh, medical information and legal information and a cover letter that went through uh, Michigan law and showed the evidence I had that fit for each uh, each prong of first-degree felony assault and how this case could be proven. Um, yeah, and we went up to Michigan and we filed the police report. We started a Title IX process. Uh, that same week, uh, and just really gave it everything we had right out of the gate. That must have gone, when it went big, it must have went nuclear, which we all know that how it did. What was, I don't want to say, was it hard to hold on to everything that was happening? I'm sure it kind of almost felt like it was spiraling out of control, but after 16 years, you had to have the faith. And pulling everybody together through that, too, that building that team around you, that you're not alone in that capacity, right? There, there are others out there. You just, it's not whether or not you have to find them. Sometimes you can see them. It's just that willingness to step forward together. And I mean, yeah. you, especially coming from how you started this. I mean, you went on your path early and never quit that. No matter, and even though you, it was that far down the road waiting for your patience and timing. And, and man, that's discipline. But when it all came out in the op open, did it? What was your what was the hurdles that started coming in front of you? And did uh, it seem like just a, a crack in the dam or a small fracture? And when everyone was looking for someone to take the lead on this, is yeah, you know, I think that's actually one of the things that we need to wrestle with culturally, uh, and one of one of the misnomers that people have about the Larry Nasser investigation, uh, because by the time the vast majority of people really tuned in to what was happening, they tuned in at the sentencing hearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or they tuned in when some of the Olympians spoke up. And that was actually almost two full years down the road already. Oh. Uh, and so when people started watching, you know, they, they saw 156 women stand up in court and face their abuser who was dressed in an orange jumpsuit and he was gaunt and thin and couldn't even raise his eyes anymore. And they saw a historic verdict uh, or sentence come down uh, from the judge. And it really almost gave the sense of Larry's demise was inevitable. You know, we had this army, but that's not how it started. From the very beginning, uh, when I first came forward to that police report, it was an incredible uphill battle. Uh, because what we now know, looking back on it, is that when I filed when I filed that first police report, what immediately started happening at MSU uh, was an attempt to uh, to bolster Larry and to protect Larry in the medical department. The dean of the medical school, who was Larry's boss, sent him an email saying, "I'm on your side." Uh, sent emails around the office talking about women. He said to uh, the provost of Michigan State University that mocked my video testimony and called it the cherry on the cake of his day. Uh, Larry was instantly surrounded uh, by colleagues who had in prior years helped him uh, avoid, uh, avoid prosecution and avoid investigation. And those same people at MSU uh, again helped, tried to help him avoid investigation and vouched for him uh, and tried to assure investigators that there was nothing wrong. Uh, immediately, USAG actually already had mechanisms in place 
for burying what they knew about Larry. USAG, we now know, uh, actually had received uh, and knew that Larry was a pedophile uh, a year and a half before I came forward. Uh, And rather than uh, pursuing an investigation with him, they had actually settled some lawsuits with non-disclosure agreements, binding those survivors to silence so that they couldn't speak up. They let Larry come back uh, to Michigan State University and continue abusing children for 15 more months. Uh, they, uh, the, the head of USAG, Steve Penny, uh, had drinks with the FBI office that was supposed to be investigating Larry uh, and told Jay Abbott, the head of the FBI office, uh, about a cushy job offer at the USOC. So rather than Larry being investigated like he should have been, uh, the head of the FBI department that was supposed to be overseeing that investigation was instead having drinks with the president of USAG and entertaining a cushy job offer. We now know that the head of the USOC, Scott Blackman, who also knew that Larry was a pedophile before I came forward, admitted to deleting emails where there were records of what they knew about what Larry was doing. Uh, and from the very beginning, it was an incredible up battle uh, to fight not just these organizations, but also multiple law enforcement agencies that had either botched investigations or had sat on investigations um, and fighting uh, just you know, the authority structures and the power structures that had kept Larry in place for so very long. I mean, there's no way to, that's not aiding and abetting or facilitating a crime. Cause I mean, you, you do that in any other capacity, you're, you're, you're culpable. Is that not how it works with that with assault? Uh, there is an investigation actually right now into the FBI's handling of the situation. Uh, you know, the, the reality is, and again, this is what many, many people don't realize uh, is that the reality is that holding enablers like that accountable, legally accountable, is an incredibly difficult thing to do, and very few people want to take the time and effort to do it. Uh, so right now, the FBI is being investigated. The USSC and the USAG are being investigated. There have been some criminal charges already levied uh, because Steve Penny, the president of USAG, and employees of USAG participated in destroying medical records uh, and taking medical records from the Corolli Ranch that involved what Larry had been doing. Uh, so there have been some criminal charges levied. There are continued investigations, but there are other agencies that have yet to be investigated. For example, uh, Steve Penny contacted the uh, the head of the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, the head of their child abuse unit. And when I came forward, Steve Penny texted the head of that unit, the head of the child sex abuse unit, and he asked him for help, quote, body slamming the sources in my story. And he was referring to the, the investigators uh, and reporters who were uh, bringing the evidence about Larry forward. Uh, And nobody has investigated IMPD. Nobody has asked the question, how did the president of USAG know that the head of the sex abuse division of the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department was going to help him? Because that doesn't happen just once. That wasn't a coincidence. Something had already happened that let Steve Penny know he could send a text like that to a police officer. And the police officer wasn't going to say, no, no, we're going to investigate this fully. Um, So there are other agencies that have yet to be investigated. And that's not abnormal. You know, we see those dynamics happening over and over again. The the way the uh, Epstein case was handled uh, the first time that Jeffrey was brought up on charges is just abhorrent. Uh, and there is ample evidence that there may have been illegal activity uh, in how and how that case was tried and the way the sentencing came down. Uh, but holding enablers accountable is something very few people are willing to do. And oftentimes, where things break down is that the law enforcement. Uh, the law enforcement level, and that's something that we really have to reckon with. Is that something that's is that something that you're doing now as a lawyer? Is that your front side focus? 
it is it is part of my focus. Uh, right now, I'm not practicing law. Of course, I'm working as an advocate and an educator. Uh, but the legislative reform that's necessary and the legal reform that's necessary, uh, both in our investigative and prosecutorial processes, are something I'm very passionate about. Uh, because, again, that's where a lot of it really breaks down. Uh, and we saw that over and over again, not just in our case, but in cases across the country. Sure. I mean, what is it as as civilians, as as just people in the in the community? Like, if you, what is it we can do, or or teach, or show, or or talk about to to prevent this from happening? Yeah, I think there is a lot uh, that civilians can do in their individual capacity, and it starts very, you know, very first and foremost with how we ourselves talk and think. Um, you know, using the, the sphere of influence that we have, whether that's your physical community, your religious community, your professional community, uh, using that to educate and to advocate when issues of abuse come up, um, becoming aware of issues of abuse and harassment so that you can be advocating when those things are happening in your community. Every community has uh, problems with abuse and harassment. It's not unique to any particular organization or institution. Uh, but is there, is there an uprising in that community? Does that community stand up and say, no more, this is not acceptable. Uh, we're not going to behave this way. We're not going to act this way. Uh, we're not going to tolerate this kind of behavior. Uh, because a lot of times, unfortunately, you know, it is, it is our community that is in the position to do something about abuse. Yet it is our community that is least likely to do something about abuse when it's right there in our backyard. Uh, because it would cost us to do something. It would take effort. Uh, it would take sacrifice. And so it really starts with being willing to be advocates uh, in our own communities and then to hold people accountable. You know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the people who, uh, who have breakdowns uh, with the investigation and the prosecution, there are elected officials involved with that. You know, a lot of times prosecutors are elected. The county prosecutor is elected or the sheriff is elected. Uh, and those really set for how those offices are going to be run and how they're going to handle cases uh, of sexual assault. And so we can we can advocate with our voices and we can advocate with our vote. That's unbelievable. I, I have a quick question, just to back this up a little bit. And the the drive that you have that the, the the determination that sets you on this path. First, you were a gymnast and athlete and, and then going into the law and then that hope and that resolve that you have. Where, where, where'd that come from? And have you always had that? I mean, your parents, were they, were they dri a driving force in your life? And because a lot of people out there, when they get in a situation and they get something bad happens to them, they, they introvert. They won't talk. They, they won't say anything about it. And even if somebody's standing there trying to help them with it. But with you, it was the opposite. I mean, the yeah. more they, they didn't want to talk about it, the more you tried to raise awareness, not only for yourself, because it started with you, but with, with the other gymnasts. Yeah, uh, you know, and that's, that's part of what I really wanted to be able to, uh, to dig into in the memoir uh, that I wrote was to explain not just where that came from, but the community that I had to be surrounded with to make that kind of advocacy possible. Uh, because the reality is a lot of victims are not surrounded with that kind of community. They don't have the kind of support system. Um, that I had, it really came from a lot of sources. Uh, you know, my parents were, um, you know, very active in my growing up years, just portraying uh, a healthy balance of justice and forgiveness. Um, you know, creating a healthy home life uh, so that healing could take place. I had a safe place to speak up. 
Uh, I'm very naturally inclined, uh, just personality-wise, uh, to, to issues of justice um, you know, and, and to advocacy. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a wide variety of sources. Uh, I, I come from a, a faith background and even local Christian, and so there are certainly aspects of my faith and theology uh, that are driving factors in the pursuit of goodness and the suppression of evil. Uh, so it really was a wide variety of factors. But I think it is important uh, to know and to be explicit that it was a community that surrounded me, and that's vital, and that's the kind of support that survivors need. What are the, some of the things that you would recommend? Because I, if you grow up in a, in a community where it's caring and loving and you are protected, and then and it's when you step out and you go in, in, on your adventures into those other climates and the, the people that you surround with, the other gymnasts, the girls, what are some of the things that you should – because this guy's a snake, man. He worked himself in the, into the one capacity where he had an opportunity to be alone with the girls, the doctor, the doc. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah, – that guy, a special place in hell for him. But anyways – when you're in the gym and you are, y'all are all together, what are some of the things that you should talk about to, to keep that out in the open if it does happen? Some, some pearls of wisdom in that regard. So it doesn't, get, yeah, so it doesn't ab- slide behind the, the curtain, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are several things that are very key. Uh, and the first is recognizing that no community is immune from this. You know, there's always a tendency to want to uh, sequester off a scandal and say, well, that's, that's their problem over there. That's a gymnastics problem. That's a medical problem. That's the Catholic church problem, uh, you know, cause we don't want it to be our own community. So the very first thing we need to recognize is that we have that risk. We have those abusers in our own community. We need to understand what abusive dynamics look like, uh, that abusers can be and are anyone. Uh, abusers are rarely, uh, you know, the guy in the trench coat hiding behind a bush uh, or in a windowless white van. Abusers are usually people that you would never expect would be abusers. They cultivate an outward persona of being kind, doing good things, and showing interest in the people around them. They groom not just their victims, but they groom the community around them. Uh, And the first thing that survivors always hear when they speak up is, that's not possible because. And then the person that they've disclosed to is going to have a list of reasons why they don't think uh, that the person who's accused could be an abuser and why they don't think the abuse could have happened the way uh, that, the, that the child describes or the, or the victim describes. And what we need to understand is that those very things that are making us say, that's not possible, those are the very dynamics that are keeping that abuser in power, that are giving them access, that are keeping victims silent. Make and it when possible. We have that instantaneous, yeah, yep, that's what's making it possible. When you have that instantaneous response, that's not possible because, what you've just done is you've had the response the abuser counted on you having. You've done exactly what they wanted you to do. So we need a much better job understanding the dynamics of abuse and how abuse takes place. So we don't have that instinctive not possible response when, in fact, it's very possible. Uh, we need to understand trauma and how that impacts the ability of the victim to speak up. Uh, and again, so questions that are damaging. Why didn't you speak up sooner if it was such a big deal? Why didn't you do something? Uh, because it often takes years. For survivors to speak up. Uh, and if the first they hear when they speak up is that they've been blamed, that they've been it, they will immediately shut back down. And that closes off any avenue we have uh, of getting the truth and stopping a predator. Uh, we need to create communities where survivors are able to speak up in safety rather than being attacked as soon as they raise their voice. Uh, so all of those things are just incredibly important because it signals not just to the survivor that it is safe to speak up. It also signals to predators that it's not safe for them in this community. Uh, that survivors are going to be listened to and believed. 
And predators are very skilled people. They're constantly looking for where they're going to be safe, where they can abuse with impunity, in what situations they can abuse where uh, victims aren't going to be believed or their voices are going to be discounted. And if you create a community of listening to survivors and taking allegations seriously and understanding the dynamics of abuse, it not only makes it safer for survivors, it makes it less safe for the predators. Sure. It's hard enough to talk about sex with your kids at that age anyways, for the parent, much less if something's, uh, and it's uncomfortable to hear it. It's sometimes even hearing the word and that, and that, that kind of that frame when you're going through all that and, and in the capacity where this guy was hiding out as a doctor, you, most of the time you don't even know that that's something's going wrong. Right. How do you, as a, as a parent now, I'm, I'm sure you've given this a lot of thought. What, what can we tell our children that would, would make sense to them to say, Hey, if this, cause we all have the, what we learned, stranger danger, hey, this, that, and the other, but I guess mm-hmm. in an instance where it actually happens, the dynamic shifts. And now, because we can teach them, hey, this isn't okay, but then you have, as you said, the predator on the other side saying something completely different that may make more sense to the child initially. How do, we, right. how do we change that? I think there are a couple of things that parents really have to keep in mind. And the first reality that we have to grapple with uh, is the unpleasant reality that I don't like, that you can do everything right and still have a child who's victimized. That's the truth. We may not be able to protect our children from everything. So it's critically important that we keep open communication, very basic, important concepts that will grow in that sexual knowledge growth. Uh, so we start with principles of consent, principles of bodily autonomy. So in our house, for example, we have a rule that you don't touch without permission. And my children know that they can come and tell me so-and-so touched without permission, even if it's a positive touch. We don't hug without permission. We don't tickle without permission. You always have right to say no. And you should be asked before somebody touches you. If someone does not ask you before they touch you, you can come to mommy and daddy and I will defend you. Um, you know, and that concept will grow with them as their sexual knowledge grows. Uh, so, of course, we, you know, we talk about private parts being private and just, you know, those basic concepts, but it has to go beyond that because you're right. Sexual abuse rarely looks like you think it's going to look. It rarely looks like the child thinks it's going to look. And so we have to go to much broader concepts to help the children understand those foundational ideas. And then those foundational ideas mature with them as their sexuality matures. Uh, So we, again, we talk about not just concepts of consent, but concepts of bodily autonomy and concepts of privacy. Uh, you know, where my, we respect our children's physical privacy and we verbalize that to them over and over. Mommy's going to step out of the room so you can change your clothes now and put on your pajamas uh, so that your privacy is respected. We defend their privacy um, and they know that those things will be defended. They know that we value them and so that they have a safe place to tell us uh, if something doesn't feel right uh, or if their privacy hasn't been respected, if, they ha- if there hasn't been consent uh, for some kind of physical contact. Um, so we really talk about all of those foundational concepts because those are the things that will grow with them as they as they mature. You need to write that down. <laughs> that was that, that was very very well articulated. I know you have two books out. You have your memoirs and you have your children's book. What what you said was very profound, and I've never very relatable and very. Have you written that down somewhere? <laughs> we have it recorded now, so I may send it back to you. But that was great. I mean, that's important information because at the capacity when you're a parent in the, at the, the younger generations, when they're growing up, they need to know that you should be comfortable around your parents. And then as they grow up, you I say, hey, look, uh, now it's to the point to where you, you change, you go into the bathroom, you, you, in the shower. That's the one thing about what happens when these predators get in like they did, man. It pulls the capacity away to a show, of, show affection and love. 
there's, there's a fine mm-hmm. line between that. And you can't, you, to get rid of one of them, you, you can't lose the other. I think that's important. I mean, because one of the ways you know if people are safe around you is if they do show affection, if they do smile, if they get, hey, if I'm happy to see you and I give you a hug. It's one of those things where you, you just have to, you do have to teach the kids at a, at a young age to let them understand that there are things out there that will take advantage of the, of you and the situation that you're in, but ultimately to not be afraid to tell your parents or somebody that, that things are making you uncomfortable. I think it's incumbent upon, even if you don't have parents and you've been yeah. raised up, you see something. I mean, it's, it's not hard to see if, if, if a child's pattern changes or if they're uncomfortable, especially if they're doing something they love. And somebody that was dug in like that guy was for as long as he was and what he did. I mean, those y'all, the gymnasts, man, y'all, we love you guys so much. That's one of the, the, the greatest sports we have to watch you guys compete and to represent our country and to have something like that slither his way in there and, and defile it was unthinkable. So thank you for everything that you've done and uh, and the motivation that you've had to help all these women. It will resonate. Don't ever think differently. I mean, in the capacity of what happened to you in the beginning and set that mark and kind of blaze that that path for you to to turn around and come back and get that guy. When I'm sure he thought in the, in the back of his head he wouldn't that was never going to happen. And it was the one thing that he took advantage of, and that was you. And going through all that, that tribulation, that trial, you know, gold is forged in fire. The hotter the fire, the purer the gold. So, again, great job. Thank you. Where can people follow you? Where can folks find Let's. Where can we get our send our listeners over? I'm sure, I mean, there's got to be so many out there that would just love to read more about you and hear more about you and maybe even contact you. What's the best, best way? For people that are interested uh, in, in more of the story and just what it took, um, I have written a memoir called What is a Girl Worth? Uh, and it really is written for everybody. It's written for uh, survivors to know that they're not alone. It's written for people who are walking alongside survivors to help them understand the dynamics of abuse. Uh, and it's also written because, frankly, it's a very powerful story uh, to be able to tell the story of what it took to wrest control from these organizations um, you know, and, and the past of feeling and all of all of those ultimate life questions that all of us ask. Um, and so it is a book that is really written for everyone. Everyone. Uh, there is also a children's book for little girls called What is a Little Girl Worth? that examines some of those core concepts of what is our identity? Where is our value? Can somebody take it away? Uh, you know, does something, if something bad happens to us, is that, does that diminish what we're worth? And I, you know, I would love to have, uh, to be able to interact with people on social media. I have a Twitter, uh, a Twitter handle, and uh, there's an official Facebook page, and uh, there's a website with my name on it uh, that has all of our speaking engagements. Uh, and so I just, I love being able to connect. Uh, with people when I'm out advocating and educating. And so all of those are really great ways uh, to just stay involved and up to date. Hey, Rachel, say those, say your um, address is on so we have them, so we can do the plug on the show, would you? Yep. Yep. The Facebook profile is just Rachel Denholder and then it's an official Facebook page. Uh, and then the Twitter uh, handle is r Denhollander. Okay. All right. I got one last question for you. What's next? You know, I think my answer to that question is uh, just to be faithful with what I've been given. Uh, you know, we have four young kids that we're raising, and uh, at the same time, the advocacy and the education is very important. Uh, and so I do intend to continue being active in legislative work, continuing uh, to speak uh, and to and to educate. Um, you know, and it's it's not just issues of abuse, I think, that we really have to confront. So I do, I do advocate, obviously, uh, and educate a lot on that specific issue. Um, you know, I have had the opportunity and, and will be continuing to speak to questions of corporate ethics and legal ethics 
uh, to questions of leadership training uh, and how we make our decisions, decision making and leadership training. Uh, and so really uh, using using this story, uh, not just to advocate on the issue of sexual assault, uh, but to be to go much broader uh, than that and look at um, so many of the other factors that we also have to look at just uh, in terms of what makes us uh, what makes us a good society, what makes us a good community uh, and how do we better ourselves. God bless you. God, God bless you for everything. All right, girl. Thank you so much again for coming out and doing that. Thank you we for sharing you your, best your story with us. And your family. God bless you. You take oh, care. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank God you, God We appreciate you talking about that, Rachel, and bringing that to light. And I mean, I, I, we know that's your life, and 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 you honestly that's your have calling. to sit down and you have to listen to her perspectives. Yeah, that's a lot longer than we can snapshot it in the amount of time that we had with her. So, I mean, if you guys are out there, please. She's been through a lot, but she's changed the landscape dramatically. It's our powerful women, man. And thank her. I'm just thank her for her courage. Yeah, and to all you ladies out there. That, that that's happened to man we're truly affected by it and uh we love y'all and y'all are we have got your yeah, back man, 100%. we do 100 never forget that if you're in trouble or something man just holler out don't be scared because there, there, there's guys out there that are willing to stand there right beside you there's one of them taking advantage of you please know that never quit the reason the the guys around this area is so strong is because of our women <laughs> i mean truly so if uh, if one of them gets off off track and and decides to abuse the one thing that we're fighting for, we should know about it. So thank you to all of our ladies out there, and thank you Rachel for for being one of those uh, those generals, one of those leaders. We need them. So if you want to be the first one to know when we drop a new episode, then you need to make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. You can press the purple subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or any other major podcast player to be notified the moment we release a new episode. The show is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much any other podcast player. We've had a ton of great episodes and had some incredible guests along the way, including Mr. Justin Legg, UFC President Dana White, and the Honorable and one of our hometown heroes, Mr. Jim Mattress Mac McInvale. If you're already following us on Facebook and Instagram, you know we keep our followers up to date with gear, sales, guests, events, tons of other stuff you're not going to get anywhere else. If you're not following us yet, you're missing out. Follow us right now, team underscore never quit. You can keep up with Marcus at Marcus Latrell, Morgan at Mojo Latrell, and me at Andrew Brockenbush on Instagram. And thank you guys for coming back yet an- another week, another episode. Because we're going to be here. Y'all be here. We're going to be here. We'd be doing it. <laughs>